natural fibers in the bathroom. You sound like Jeremy Irons in Reversal of Fortune. God damn it, that's not what I was going for at all. Hey everyone, welcome to the Actual Garbage Podcast. We've got the movie crew back again. We got old man Riley to my left, and to his left, we got Nicole Paddock. If you need an introduction to them, listen to the Birdman episode. Or any other episode that yeah. we've been on. There have been plenty of them at this point. This week, Ryan yes. picked Psycho. Alfred Hitchcock's. Psycho. Yes. Well. Oh, well, this film is one of Alfred Hitchcock's, my favorite, probably my favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. Uh, I do enjoy Psycho quite, quite a lot, and I felt it was important because we're trying to go back into film history, trying to get some important firsts in there. This is this got a lot of firsts in it. Yeah, it's Nicole's, got it. Nicole's favorite first is the this has the first bathroom toilet, uh, the first toilet flushing. Yes, yes, first toilet flushing in American cinema. Yes, so I figured this was an, an honor of this momentous, <laughs> an honor of this momentous achievement in cinema. I actually didn't know that till after we rewatched the film. I. I felt it was very impactful emotionally. <laughs> I mean, I was watching it in the in the toilet flushes, and I'm, I'm I find myself in, in, engaged in this world even more so after this. Well, that was the magic of the production code, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, there were there were standards at a time. It wasn't just a cloak and dagger organization like the MPAA. Yes. There were. I don't know that the rules were written necessarily, but basically, you couldn't do anything that hadn't been done before without a fight. Yeah, there was. I. I don't know exactly because I'm just going on based what my old relatives have told me, but I think like the Catholics had some sort of like code in which they'd rate how racy movies were. So, you know, like because this movie starts out with an extramarital affair. Yes. This was automatically like, you know, right off the bat, probably like the worst thing, you know, they'd put out at that point. Well, and, and I think let's just let's, <laughs> let's just dive right into this, fucker, shall we? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, let's get let's get some initial impressions. Ryan. In the pantheon of Hitchcock, you've already said this is at the top. Does that put it near the top just in general for you? I mean, for in, in terms of Hitchcock or in terms of film? In terms of film more generally. Yeah, I'm a big, well, I'm a fan of Hitchcock anyway. We've watched before, uh, we've watched several movies. We watched a movie of his. North um, by Northwest. North by Northwest is, is enjoyable. Which is probably actually one of his best films because this is, this is like a low budget Hitchcock film. So, you know, it wasn't his, it wasn't his most like epic masterpiece. Yeah. And you get you get the you know Hitchcock. If you are looking for some other films by him, uh, Thirty Nine Steps, Rebecca, Vertigo, Vertigo, The Birds, um, North by Northwest is a must. My one of my some it, this movie has some of my favorite components of it, but overall it's not my favorite Hitchcock film. But I'm a big fan of Strangers on a Train. That's I really, an excellent one. Really enjoy Strangers on a Train. I also a lot. like the casting and Notorious a lot. Yes, Notorious is very so Full he Nazi. You know he action. has yeah he has a very wide range of films that he has made and he is seminal i mean we, we talk about film being hitchcockian like the idea that th that he like like franz kafka has almost defined a feel or an approach to filmmaking and uh, i think it's important if we're going if you appreciate film or if you enjoy police procedurals mysteries psychological thrillers or psychological horror movies because this was essentially the slasher uh, yeah this is the mother of slasher films. Yes, and so he, when you when you look at the dark side of what film can portray, and when you see it portrayed in a way where there was so many restrictions on, you know how uh, or what you could show, 
this film is groundbreaking in a very real sense. And this was 1960. This movie was made. 1960. Yes, yeah, so this was made in the 50s. you know, projected, shown in the night in 1960 itself before Kennedy got elected. You know, so I mean, this is you know, this is innocent America. We didn't even let Catholics in the White House. I know. I mean, this is like you know some pretty uh, racy stuff going on here, and I just think that in general. Like I said, I'm a big fan of Hitchcock in general, and this movie is very, very much at the top of his oeuvre, if you will. Oh, it, it definitely is. I mean, it generally, I think that's what everybody knows. You know, everybody knows Hitchcock and Psycho, even though Psycho isn't necessarily the, you know, if you were looking at the 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 breadth of Hitchcock's work, Psycho is actually very different than a lot of his other films, even though this is the one that, like, most people know it, anyways. It's got a strong female lead. I mean, I, everything I am aware of about Hitchcock puts women as objects in their it, movies. It, it, that's partially because um, it, him as a person, he was he didn't understand and had a very hard time relating to women. This was actually even a problem with him, like having women on the sets very early on in his career. He was a Catholic, also had mother issues. Had he was like you know had like weird sexual hangups. He you know he. He wasn't the most comfortable around the ladies. Mm-hmm. Did he have to grow into that? Uh, he got better with it um, after a while. But, I mean, there's there's a... I, I did a lot of, of research on Hitchcock way back in high school. Uh, I did a, a whole Hitchcock project. And I remember one story being recounted from one of his very early films before he had come to the U.S. And, and been indoctrinated into the Hollywood system. Um, there was, like, a scene where he was supposed to have a lady in the water... And when the actress, like, came out to the set, she's like, well, I can't go into the water because, like, I'm on my period. And he didn't even know what that was. Like, someone had to pull him aside and explain that. Like, that's how, yeah. like, unfamiliar with, like, females he was. So it, it you know, the <laughs> One ladies... One thing led to another. Yeah, the, the ladies just, just, just weren't his strong suit. He, he had a hard time, you know, working with them. He had a hard time understanding them. And, you know, he definitely, uh, you know... But but at the same time, he I think he, he, he knew what he wanted from them. Yeah, he was sheltered to a certain extent, like, you know, just within his own I don't think issues. that shows through in Psycho, though. No, but this, like I said, that was very early, even before... That was when he was still making films in the UK, which would have been, like, the late 30s. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Rebecca, Rebecca's his first American film. Yeah. That's 40, 41. Yeah, so, I mean, he, he got better with that over time. But he, he had a lot of weird hang-ups. He was terrified of cops... You know, he was like a staunch Catholic, which gave him like a weird, you know, like weird issues with like the the sex and stuff. He had a lot of like weird, the sex. weird like personal. And he ups. is, if you, uh, there's a trailer, there's a teaser trailer for this film that I accidentally discovered while we were doing this. I highly recommend checking that out. If you've never seen Hitchcock or the way that he affects. It is very important to understand who was directing this film because that guy is not the director you think he is just watching that film in a vacuum. Well, no, like, but I think, I think too, that he has an approach that where he kind of is revolutionary is where Hitchcock himself becomes a mystique, right? And an Alfred Hitchcock film becomes something, is, is more than a normal film. Well, I mean, we were talking on a trip to the moon about the uh, the sort of emblematic nature of that moon with the bullet in it. Hitchcock's silhouette is all over Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that his face is iconic, it is, a, well, even his, today. His silhouette, um, well, 
everyone could identify it because he had the TV show, and that was the opening of the TV show was basically you know his silhouette coming him, him out coming to that into music. the silhouette. Yeah. So you have the you'd have the the cartoonish you know like little like line drawing of yeah. a silhouette, and he would he would step walk into, into his it. own silhou- silhouette becoming the uh, impression or what it means to be Hitchcockian. I mean, it's very... Because Hitchcock, you know, we talked before, you you, you delved into his psychosis or yeah. his psycho- psychology. I think nothing... We, we hadn't really had a filmmaker who had entirely expressed their psychology in such a complete and formative way. And in the same sense, too, that when you... If you look at Hitchcock or the way that he communicates and the way that he carries himself... You wouldn't assume that he would be considered the master of suspense, right? The the master no, of dark storytelling. No, that's why I think it's important to see that. Yes, exactly. Because it almost seems like a contradiction in terms to see Hitchcock and then like he was synonymous in the 40s and 50s with the darker elements of what film could bring out in people. Now, I just I wanted to bring up my own detail because we're doing <laughs> so to demonstrate my, uh, my ample research into film history. But I think one of the, before we get into Psycho, the way that I, I you characterized his uncomfortability, his him being uncomfortable with women. But I think he he knows what he wants from his actors. He knows what he wants from people in general. But he also has a very powerful sense in the way that he conducts his film. And I, I don't want to bring up elements of this later on when we, when we get into the nitty gritty of Psycho itself. But he's very much a show-don't-tell director. And I know I'm going to get some blowback for this for the end of Psycho, but just hear me out for a second. Oftentimes, if you need someone to do something, it would be better to put them in a situation where they accomplish what you're wanting rather than explaining to them what you want. In the 39 Steps, there's a sequence in the 39 Steps where the two, the the co-leads, the male and the female leads, are actually handcuffed to each other during this time period. And these are, you know, people in the 30s, you know, slightly aristocratic, high-society kind of people. And... Hitchcock, of course, uh, handcuffs the two actors together and then, uh, you know, gets called away from the set for for a period. And he says, "Okay, well, and then he looks through his pockets and he doesn't have the key and no one has the key. (laughs) And so the two actors now are handcuffed to each other in reality as they were to be in the film itself. And then he disappears for four hours and the two lead actors are now handcuffed to him. And then he suddenly reappears after this period and then. You know, then they have. It's like, all right, let's let's act. Like, let's let's experience this. And he was kind of notorious also for creating these situations on the set, maybe even building antagonism between people who disliked each other, in order to elicit the kind of emotional and psychological responses he wanted from someone. In a sense, they weren't acting. Right? He created a scenario where they were merely reacting to the context in which he had created. And, you know, for people who want to engage in their personal lives, I think that's an interesting dynamic to reach as well. But it also, I think, shows, once again, his complexity, his understanding of what he wants, and his creativity in getting what he wants, uh, what he wants to accomplish. Well, he he was notorious for disliking method acting, mm-hmm. which was apparently a carryover from the stage actors that ended up being in a whole lot of his movies. Uh, he wanted the job of the writer to go to the screenwriter. He wanted the job of the character to be the director and the actor reading the lines, and that was it. He he wanted a clear division of labor on his set, which ended up getting him labeled as an auteur Mm -hmm. because the director, in being in control of the characters on screen, makes him the most powerful figure in the room. Um, But I think that works most of the time. I think that works to its benefit. Uh... Anthony Perkins is mostly just reading his lines, and he feels affable the way that I assume he was supposed to come well, off. Well, okay, I had read some interesting stuff about the casting of, of Anthony Perkins, who did an excellent, excellent job who, in this. Who plays Norman Bates, yes. by the way, yes, so, the, the famous Norman Bates. This is a little fun backstory on it. So this this movie was based on a book 
that had come out, and the book was roughly, not not like supposed to be exact, but it was roughly based on Ed Gein, who mm-hmm. was a serial killer in the 50s. Right. And in the book, um, you know, the, the, the Norman Bates character is like a fat, uh, balding, you know, greasy, rather unsavory character. Yeah. And so to flip that on its head, Hitchcock, who bought the rights for this 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 book and then proceeded to buy every single copy of the book that he could find so that no one could read it before he made the movie. Yes. Um, he went the complete opposite direction and chose to cast Anthony Perkins, who was a skinny, good-looking... Um, Good-looking guy that you could actually completely that, unassuming that you could yeah. well that and that you could even empathize with to a certain extent yes. because uh, you know when when the initial Marion Crane meets Norman Bates you know he's kind of shy he's kind of awkward boyish you know, Tony Perkins has that cute little like boyish smile um, you know so Hitchcock used Anthony Perkins to kind of flip that character on its head and help us you know kind of ease in. Ease into him initially before, you know, the whole underlying psychosis yeah. gets released. I almost want to start from the beginning. Can we start? Okay. Can, we, can, we, yeah. can we? Can we? Can we reverse here? And I think we can we take Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, specific time, specific place. These these p- panning shots. We get that. We get that sense of we're in the whole city, and you know, the film opens on this this extended, slow crane into. And once again, I, I talked before about Hitchcockian elements. He, he, he scans in step by step, moving us closer and closer to the story. And then very famously, it, it peers on a window. It moves towards the window. It goes into the window. And then we're in the scene. And it's an intimate scene. I mean, she is, Marion Crane, Janet Lee, is in her underwear, underoos yes. in this film. Very, very shocking Having at the time period. Having an extramarital affair. Having an extramarital affair. Uh, yeah. And she is there and in there. And they are just, you know, with her lover. They're discussing, you know, what they, they they have to get away, right? They they she can't keep doing this. She wants to she wants something better for herself. But just the the beauty of this shot, because you have this almost jarring sense when this when the titles come on, we know what we're expecting, right? This is a movie called Psycho. And yet the main character that we're exposed to is a woman who is, of course, very lovely, who has, you know, who is clearly in love with the with, with her lover. Yes. They are involved with each other, and we are separated, right? We are jarred by the uh, uh, Bernard Herman soundtrack which is the shrieking you know violin sequence that we all know and that we we get that from the outset and then it calms down and it moves through and it slowly paces us back into the story like a symphony of emotions in which he's trying to conduct with this it just moves up and down rising tension falling tension and it's then we begin the slow build of the Janet Lee sequence which takes almost 35 40 minutes to mm-hmm. get to the to the famous scene in the Norman Bates hotel in the, in the Bates motel yeah I want to bring you back to the beginning. Yes, okay, good. The camera, which we mentioned in Birdman, we actually described it as Hitchcockian in the Birdman episode. Mm -hmm. This is the masterclass example that I'm aware of for the way that a camera can be willful. The way that it sets up at the front where the music is ominous Mm -hmm. during the title scene and then it goes to a basically a hot opening. Yep. You're just looking around at a city and the camera notices a hotel mm-hmm. and goes, oh, well, that's interesting. Let's take and a look. Yeah. Let's just take a look at this slice of life yeah. in Phoenix, Arizona at this particular time. And it just keeps going in and going in and going in and going in. And as soon as the camera has intruded upon Marion's life, it is virtually always 
at about a 50 millimeter lens away from everyone for the rest of the movie. As mm -hmm. soon as it takes that one wide shot, mm -hmm. virtually every other scene in the movie looks like a person has invaded, is a fly, you're a fly on the wall everywhere else. Yes. The movie is almost aggressively intimate. Mm -hmm. It's got a voyeuristic attitude about it, uh, the way that it flips between things. You never get a really good composing shot of any particular, like the cabin, you very rarely see up-down shots of it. You don't get a really good sense, unless a character is walking on the steps of the cabin, you don't really ever see the house from any perspective except for where you would if you were standing there looking over at where his right. where Norman Bates's mother is the the camera is practically claustrophobic yes and i think that is of the hitchcockian elements i'm aware of mm -hmm. probably the best done of any i've seen no it, it has the, the camera has presence and then it tries to relay that the the char the characters themselves presence on the film as well so we know that Janet Lee's the main character she is involved and in almost center frame in a lot of shots as well she's clearly the focus so for example when she when she leaves the hotel with her lover she goes to work and then we get the wonderful setup of the you know $40,000 cash what did what did Dylan say Dylan say that was that um $320,000 in today's money yeah, or so yeah that would that would be life changing money yeah that would, I, you know consider a crime for that but, <laughs> but regardless we have you know but the the you know the the, the tycoon that is uh, you know that Cassidy that, I think his name yeah, is yeah he, he comes in and you know he kind of invades the frame as well right he he flirts with with Marion Crane he goes and he sits on her desk yeah he invades, he invades her personal yeah, space yeah he goes into it and you know there's he's Hitchcock is so I think aware of presence also because also Hitchcock hated being touched he was very very he very much liked his own seclusion and he did not like being you know, physically touched as no, well. No, there's a lot of, like, just voyeurism. Like, you know, the camera's almost a voyeur to this story because, I mean, in essence, you know, Marion Crane, her, it, it's not that, that she's the most important character. It's that, you know, she's the one we're following who, you know, ends up getting stuck in this bad situation. But because she's essentially killed 30 minutes through, I mean, she's not even, like, the main character that carries us through. She's just kind of the storyline that gets us to the spot where where we want to be, but there's like a voyeuristic aspect to, you know, the camera work, to us watching this story. Right. Even, um, you know, Norman Bates, like he comes across kind of as a nice, shy, you know, polite guy. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. And then what does he do? He's, you know, sitting there with his peak hole. Peak yeah. You know, so there's, there's like a sense of voyeurism just in the fact that you're watching this film. Well, he plays so much on the interior exterior motif, mm -hmm. you know, where how who we are and what we are, who we, you know, who what, who we are and what we project. And the interior exterior dynamic in this is very good also. And you know, I mean, it's these themes are just so well intertwined throughout this. I mean, we're, we're skipping ahead. We're not even to the Bates Motel yet. It's so easy to do, though, I know, because oh, all of this, there's it, so much good stuff. It, I know, well, that, and it floods across the whole movie. Yes, yeah. this is yes, this is the key thing too. I think you're absolutely right. What what is so good about Psycho is the way in which it 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 builds on itself and builds on these motifs just ever so slightly. So, for example. When Marion finally decides, steals the money, right? She is given the money, you know, take, take it, go deposit it, and then, we'll, you know, it'll be the weekend. Once she is goaded into doing so, this yes. is the intimacy of intimacy, the just general intrusion into her life of Cassidy, who is not only flirting with her, sitting on her desk, but is talking about how money can solve all their problems. Mm -hmm. how, and we've he, already established that money would solve a lot of poor Miss Crane's problems in the opening sequence because yeah. the reason she can't have her, you know, perfect house and picket fence is 
because of money issues Alimony. with her lover. Yeah, with her lover. Yeah. yeah. Ruining people's lives since yeah. 1960. <laughs> yeah, and and essentially Cassidy invades her life the same way the camera just invaded her mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. and basically almost forces her hand. Well, and he invades her personal space the way he's sitting on her desk and there's, mm. yeah. It, the scene is very uncomfortable. Yes. As it, Once again, as it's intended to be so. Yeah. But I think what, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go back. We can, we can come back to that later as well. So <laughs> she steals the money and she sets off, right? She is now escaping to start this new life with this new cash. Not unscathed. No, Her not boss un- knows about it. Yeah, it's it wants, so we get the, the 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 knowing and the not knowing and you know, she moves forward then she has an inter- uh, she she uh pulls her car over to sleep uh during the evening and she's awoken by a police officer. She obviously is acting suspicious and he's curious and he follows her through a very awkward and hilarious exchange. But to be frank, when I'm I like that scene when she goes to the used car lot and she. That's my favorite scene. Yeah, high yeah. pressures the salesman into selling her, trading in her used car, and. But no mood for trouble. What? There's an old saying: first customer of the day is always the most trouble. But like I say, I'm in no mood for it, so I'm going to treat you so fair and square that you won't have one human reason to give me. Can I trade my car in and take another? Do anything you've a mind to. Being a woman, you will. That yours? Yes, it's. it's uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I just. Sick of the sight of it. Well, why don't you have a look around here and see if there's something to strike your eyes. Meanwhile, I'll have my mechanic give you the once over. You want some coffee? I was just about no, to. No, thank you. It's plus $700. While, this, while and... this cop is just resting on his car across the street watching this whole transaction. Once again, voyeurism. Like, yes. seeing what does this yes. look like on the outside. And what's beautiful about all the tension of those scenes is that in terms of the plot, they mean nothing. The no. cop never shows up again. The fact that she trades the car doesn't mean anything. And he anything. doesn't pursue her after she trades the car either. Yeah. He just watches the whole, he just stands back and watches the whole interaction from across the street. Oh, much like much like us, right? Yes. He, he, we, we get these interloopers. Oh, we're there. Yeah, we get yeah. those interloopers <laughs> and we see, we're, we're conscious of watching because we see other people watching as well. And we're still, uh, you know, once again, Hitchcock is called the master of suspense, and he has a great like analogy when he he's interviewed by Francois Truffaut, who is yes. a, fr- a French New Wave filmmaker, and these are very very famous interviews. There's, there's like 27 hours of interviews between him and Francois Truffaut, and he has this kind of famous this famous ty- ty- typology between fear, suspense, and surprise. And he so he, the famous one is that he imagine that like we're in this podcast and suddenly a bomb explodes underneath us, right? Mm-hmm. The audience would be surprised because they had no, under, you know, they had no knowledge, foreknowledge, that there was a bomb underneath the table under this podcast at this very moment. There but was what, no Chekhov's gun for the bomb. There we go, right? So what if they had been told, what if you had told everyone that there was a bomb that will go off at this time, at this point, or this minute in the podcast? Suddenly, the way the audience would be listening to this, like, they would be anticipating what would be coming up, right? They would be saying, you know, why are you just talking about Psycho? There's a fucking bomb that's going to explode. I mean, you know, what are... It's that, Get out of there. Yeah, it's that famous idea that, you know, in, in horror movies, don't go into the room. Yes, like, you, yes. You know you're not supposed to go into the room. Like, But creating that in a more subtle way that is, you know, where that sense comes from, you know, we can trace this back. There is... there We can, we can point to this kind of moment in Psycho where we know something's coming up. Because Marion Crane, Janet Lee, is clearly not psychotic. She is not the psycho of the film. And yet we spend 35 minutes with her with no introduction of anyone else about what this film is actually about. And we are continually building this anticipation. But also, the, the whole journey of Marion Crane through the first 35 minutes, it lays us into this as well. Now, I think someone had made the comment when we were watching this, like, well, she's a thief. Like, why am I supposed to connect with this with this thief? And yet there is a journey in which she undertakes this, takes the money, and 
She reconciles this decision in her mind during this period as well through the discussion with Norman Bates also. And Hitchcock even kind of talks about how this is, you know, when she gets to the, when she takes the money and she gets back to the room, there's this sense that, you know, okay, you know, is she going to actually go through with this? Because I think to a certain extent, we both want her to succeed, right? We want her to be happy. She's attractive. She's, she's uh, um, uh, appealing and she wants what we all want, right? This the freedom that money can provide and the ability to fulfill our desires. And within that, she finds herself intruding on a world that she knows and that we had not perceived would be as drastic or as horrible as it was. She's also in over her head the whole time. I mean, she doesn't fool a single person in that film. Whenever anybody asks her if something's wrong, she acts in the same way that Norman Bates does later. She has absolutely no guile to the way that she talks to other people. With The, the police officer immediately figured out that something was amiss. Mm -hmm. The used car salesman immediately recognized, like, nobody's falling for this routine. She's not good at what she's doing. No, but, and I think that he does that to, you know, well, it build puts, within it, us a and, sense and that she might it, be innocent. So well, she truly is an innocent. It also, but it also, yeah, it kind of shows her vulnerabilities. Yes, too. exactly, yeah. You know, because she's in a vulnerable position because she's, you know, by taking that money and escaping, she has now, like, put a lot of onus on herself in terms of her culpability that she did not have. Like, you know, up until... Up until she made that swap with the car, I mean, at any point, she could have gone back and rectified this situation. But once and she started... And she almost tried. Yeah, but once she, you know, once she buys the car and starts spending the money, like, that's the point where, you know, she, you know, now there's no real turning back from this. But, mm -hmm. you know, she she could have turned back at any point. Well, and, and two, that we, we he wants to say, Hitchcock's building the layers of our connection to Marion. He wants us to spend time with her. He wants this will she, won't she. At the same point, we know that she is on, you know, she is moving towards her death, right? She is moving towards the psycho, the namesake of the movie, right? We, we know where this is building. We know where this is going. And we are, you know, I think pulling for her, right? The, the, her lack of guile is, is an expression of innocence. Her, you know, the moral ambiguity of the setup with the, with the you know, cantankerous, not cantankerous, but the, you know, the, the smarmy businessman in the scene. You know, we're, we're led to believe that she has some sort of possible heroic role within this. And yet, at the same time, you know, we know where this is heading, right? This is the suspense. The bomb has been set through the very, you know, the very name of the movie itself. The bomb has been set. It's funny because I think in hindsight we know that. But at the time when this came out, we did not know that. The fact that Hitchcock decided to kill his main character. yes. Third, you know, 30 to 40 minutes into the film. In 1960, that was a hard fucking thing for audiences to deal with. Like, that screened horribly with I, the studios. I mean, for what it's worth, that would screen pretty horribly now. I, there's <laughs> There are a couple of golden rules when it comes to writing of all forms. Uh, one of the top one, one of the top ones for that, regardless of fiction or nonfiction, is that you have to know your audience. And in fiction, what that manifests as is having a character to relate to. Mm -hmm. You'll find that most fiction tends to have people in it. Because if you don't have a person with a steady enough um, judgment of events, you don't have anyone to latch on to. And that makes it very hard to relate to what's going mm -hmm. on. And Hitchcock obviously makes that Marion in this movie. And then she's dead halfway through the movie and we're lost. Yeah, no, no, because there is no other main characters. And what's funny is at that point, now Anthony Perkins essentially becomes Yeah, he is the now the character. empathetic. He's the only person we can latch on yeah. to. He's the only empathic character. And it's funny because Hitchcock emphasizes this so tremendously. Because from the second Marion is in the frame, 
she is always in the frame. He does not even bother. He uh, he has a there are a couple of dialogue, uh, a couple little dialogue tidbits that happen while she's driving around, mm -hmm. where he doesn't even bother showing the characters having those discussions because he wants to make sure that we are as attached to Marion as possible. Yes. That's... He never, she never once leaves the camera. She looked like a wrong one to you? Acted like one. The only funny thing, she paid me $700 in cash. But do you see how th that, but do you see how Hitchcock has laid in the levels of suspense, right? Once again, we, we, we don't know she's going to die, but we know that at some point a psycho will appear. Yes. And we assume through the conventions of film that the heroine, the hero, will survive the encounter, right? And yet through suspense and our anticipation of what we know is coming, only then can you achieve the actual true surprise that we are leading towards. And it is just so, I mean, it's so well done as we kind of eclipse, like, so in the, in the point of the movie now, she's arriving at the Bates Motel, right? She mm -hmm. has met Norman Bates, and we get Norman Bates as this, you know, sim seemingly innocent. You know, he's got this. He's got this. This. Not he's a got wobble. his quirks. Well, yeah, but he's got. But he's got this looseness in his shoulders, right? He he bounds down the stairs. Yeah, and he is, skips. Yeah, you know, he skips up to the. Yeah, he's yeah. just he's light. He's light of foot. He is he is childlike and almost like once again. He wears it, his mind on his face. Well, you can tell exactly he, what he's thinking. Yeah, and we find out also that him. you know maybe he has preserved this childness within himself. That's a spoiler, but you know, <laughs> maybe he has kind of preserved this childness within himself as well. And he, once I think that you know when we see this also, we get the sense that okay, you know where is this coming from? How is this going to develop? And as they interact with each other, as you know. He becomes slightly suspicious, but also we see him, you know, the way that he looks at her, the way that he invites her in, you know, uh, he wants her to be a part and he takes her to his den, to the back office. And in this, we see this After exchange. positing three other places to do it. Yes. Upping the ante until it became his parlor. Yeah, until he, until he fully embraces into this intimacy that he wants to... Uh, experience with her. He's very timid. He doesn't commit until very late. He has to get multiple yeses out of her before he gets to the point he wanted to start at. Yes. And so he, we, we get to this point and then they begin their exchange in the parlor. And of course, this is when we realize that his, that his famous hobby is taxidermy. And his office is adorned with birds themselves. Now, of course, Hitchcock's movie after this is... The Birds. The Birds. And so we get, <laughs> we get this sense too, but it is... It is a, a, a the first real sense that there is something sinister going on in this well, film. Well, that there's something off with our sweet hotel owner, Norman Bates. Yes. Oh, and, and of course, as well, we see the first introduction of the mother, because when yes. she first approaches the, the, the film, we see the hotel. She looks around in the office, no one there. She then honks the horn and looks up at the house. And who do we see pacing in her bedroom but mother? And then we go into the office and Norman Bates comes down and then we get into the introduction of Norman himself and he begins to, he reveals himself to a certain extent to her. They, t they chat about where they're at, you know, about the general idea of escaping where you are, who you are. And, you know, Norman, of course, opens up and realize, you know, reveals about himself that is, you know, he is here, he is with his mother and there is a positive aspect to that relationship, but she is... But there's also tension in that relationship because she's when not, she asks, she's not right. When she asks him directly, he tightens up a little bit mm -hmm. about the mother. He starts getting more defensive, you know, and that's when it all starts. It starts showing. Yeah, his tension, his 
his lack of desire to be uh, questioned about this issue, like he doesn't like, you know, why, what, is there a way you could go? You're like, no, I can never leave her. And she just, what does he say? She just is, you know, has problems. I mean, she just, she just goes a little mad sometimes. And she's, and she's, you know, helpless. He couldn't, he couldn't leave her. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I, mean, I mean, what are you suggesting? Yeah. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't do this. And especially, of course, he says to go into a home, right? Maybe you could take her to a home or somewhere where they could care for her. And it's doubly... You know, it's do- it is, of course, the psychosis of Norman is being tinged here as well, right? We know that interior, in the interior, this is very, very unnerving to him for a very specific reason. Because as we move forward into, this, into the psychosis of Norman, we realize why he is, in fact, cringing up. It's not necessarily Norman who's reacting to what Marion is saying. It is, of course, Mother who is reacting to what Marion is saying. And this is, once again, why when you rewatch a film, and this is why you have to kind of rewatch this <laughs> film, is you see the kind of subtle brilliance of how Hitchcock is, once again, building something that you didn't even know you were experiencing for the first time around. And it is... But there is plenty to get on the first try. I mean, that is, again, the the association with Marion, I don't know that that even necessarily translated to my second watching. I watched this film three times in prep for this. And the I had a disconnect... I had a funny disconnect because I knew that Anthony Perkins was the killer going in and didn't when the shower when the shower scene spoiler <laughs> That's not a spoiler it's in the trailer. Spoiler. Um I guess yeah that could be a spoiler of the teaser in the trailer. But the um <laughs> so many layers. But nope. it was great cuz I didn't even notice I didn't even notice that he was wearing a wig in the shower scene so it yeah. did, it, it didn't register with me that that was supposed to be the mother. Yes. Which made the whole rest of the movie really confusing to me because yes. I would it just that seemed like the most straightforward like what is what is the big deal with the mom? I didn't even know why she was in the movie at that point, which was just a fun, stupid perspective to have the whole way through. But the yeah, first yeah, watch. it's supposed it's supposed to be you know the mother kills. Yeah, you know, and Mary thankfully and the end. We'll get to the end, but the payoff for that was so bad that I'm not worried about <laughs> it anyway. But we'll get there. So. Yeah. So as they as as this breakdown happens, right? Norman Norman clearly is attracted to Marion Lee, the character uh, Janet Lee. Marion Lee, I'm getting them confused. Norman is clearly a- a- attracted to her, and once again they break off. But then, you know, as they as their conversation really, I think, it, it hints at, you know, who what someone does, how that expresses who they are as a personality. We see this change in 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 her character and. In fact, we almost get the sense that she has changed her mind about her act of stealing the money. And as she goes back to her room, right, and Norman, you know, goes off, uh, uh, separates as well, She, re- we realize that she's made a moral decision, right? She has decided to return back to the crime and give the money back. That's what she decides to do, correct? Yes, although I will say that as far as, as, far as narrative beats go, I think Hitchcock made that too subtle. There, are, it, That is unambiguously, if you watch it again, that is exactly what she plans on doing. It's why she was tabulating how much money she had spent, and she rips that up and throws it in the toilet. There are plenty of signs that she wanted to turn around. Well, he and asks reverse. her. He, asks, you know, she, she, are you leaving? Oh, I'm going to sitting up early in the morning. I'm yeah. going back. Is what yeah. she says. Yeah. So she is, you know, she is returning back to where a she's little going. subtle not, though. I, yeah, that she's not going to follow through with this. I right. imagine quite a few people didn't pick up on that. I certainly didn't the first time. Right. So regardless of which, she goes back into her room. She but be- that is the intent. Yes. Yeah, that is the intent. She goes back into her room, and then of course we see Nor- uh, uh, you know Norman Bates. He removes the picture from the wall, and he of course looks at her. He he sees her undressing as she as he moves forward. He places it back, and he goes back up into the house. And then we get to one of the most famous murder scenes in cinema history. 
70 different camera setups for 92 seconds of film. It is it is amazingly, amazingly well done. And once again, I just if I can set this up for you, she is going into the shower, right? The this is I think once again Hitchcock understands the subtlety and the the horror of what we all experience in the idea well, of and the vulnerability yes, of being in the shower. You are naked, a room yes. you are naked in. And you can't hear anything because the shower is relatively loud. You are so cut you off. You can't hear things coming in. You're naked. And you just made a hard moral decision on top of this. Mm-hmm. If you actually caught the intent of yeah. the scene prior, she's got plenty on her mind already. Yep. But yes. she's attempting to wash off, yes. wash her hands of yes. if we're going to be entirely too off base on this. No, no. And I think you're, you're up. It's. No, no, no. I, I think that was the point. Mm hmm. I just think it was a little hammy. No, I think, well, you know, this is, I mean, have you seen there, Hitchcock there, in his there, mannerisms? There, there is a level of hamminess to this, but we can I mean, the man looks like a, The man look, looks like a baked ham, for God's sakes. But regardless <laughs> of it, I mean, like, but still, Hitch, you know. Physical appearance aside. So the scene as she comes into, right, she comes into the bathroom. It's very quiet. All right, she gets undressed. It's very quiet. And then she steps into the shower, turns it on, and the water comes on. And we, it's, it's loud water. We hear it. And the camera... The camera angle is like right on... Out. Seeing it, the water yeah, comes in. Yeah, seeing the water come down. And it, 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 it hits you. It strikes you. It's moving. Cut to cut to cut. Nothing, sta- nothing static. Nothing. The camera's still, but it's moving It'd be through the cuts in which it makes. And it's almost as incisive as it tries to be as it builds what we know is eventually coming. And as we hit to the most famous shot, we see it twice. Once through the wall itself, the walls seemingly disappearing to make room for the camera to give us a view of this horrible scene we know which will soon unfold. We get two shots, one where the wall used to be, seeing the door closed. We then have several cuts, seeing her bathing. We see the door, we see the same angle again, but then this time the door we see slides slowly open in darkness, a dark figure approaches. And then of course, the curtain's drawn back very quickly. Yes. She, we see a reaction shot from Marion. We see the arm go up. We see the dark face of what appears to be mother. Bring the knife down, and the incision, the incisiveness of the cuts, cuts while she was innocently taking a shower, now take a more sinister approach as they hide the fact, and we see but don't see. We more we experience and hear the knife cutting into a naked woman into the shower. We never see the knife. We see short shortcuts. We see the motion of the blade. We see the incision of the cuts themselves, interspersing themselves into this whole scene, and it is violent, and it is very, very disturbing even today. I see this scene. I see it building. I know it's coming, and I still feel like someone is being stabbed on film. It's funny because I, I read a, a uh, I think it was a, an Ebert review of this film. And, you know, being the mother of all slasher films, he talks about how this is still the best one because, you know, afterwards we just started, you know, after this happened, we just started like actually slashing people on film and blood and gore. But in 1960, Hitchcock himself didn't feel as though you could, audiences weren't ready to just have blood splattered all over them, which is part of the reason he decided to shoot this in black and white, to Mm -hmm. be able to pull this scene off. But, um, you know, Ebert would argue that this is the best, like, the the best version of a slasher film because he's able to incite those emotions without ever having to show a knife penetrating skin. Like, you talk about how, you know, you should be able without... that you should be able to, uh, you know, show not show all this stuff like you should be able to feel all this stuff without actually having to like just show all your cards and he did that brilliantly because he did a you know this this entire scene with and we never actually see a knife penetrating skin at any point but that would be against code yeah, yeah but we still get everything we need to out of this scene in terms of of you know the scare yeah and the you know the 
the workup, the buildup to it. And, you know, it, we don't need all the gore to get the point across. No. And that's what made this so brilliant. And, and to date, people just don't take that kind of time. No. <laughs> it's strange, too, because the whole, the whole lead up, the intimacy of, of, of her character getting ready, disrobing, getting in the shower. Like I said, the camera's silent, but then all of a sudden we notice the change, right? We notice the camera moving very quickly. It, it, we sense that something is coming because the editing and the camera angles are telling us this is this is not usual. Something is is happening here. And as the as the as we see the the figure come forward, we 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 now know why this is happening to us, and we're so taut and ready for what we know eventually is happening. And the way that it's revealed is so shocking. It is so unusual. The throwing back of the of the shower curtain, the raising of the, you know the the, the 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 exposing of the figure that we can't identify, the thrusting down of the knife, the the reaction. We see her hands bush, bundled up. We see the shower coming down on her. The the slightest trickles of blood mm-hmm. just on the just on the floor, right? We, which of course very famously is a chocolate syrup. Yes, yes. Right. So we see it, and then it happens. It quicks. We hear it moving down. We hear the sound. We hear the Herman. You know the the shrieking violins coming down, and then. It goes quiet, and we see the mother exit the room, and we see Marion, of course, slump back against the wall of the of the bathroom, and the music, of course, which was so streaking, so 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 fast paced, is now slowing down. Mm-hmm. And as she creeps down, as she as she slumps the light down, slowly leaks out. Yes, yeah, her. her heartbeat goes forward, and then she falls out of the bathroom, and we follow her feet down, and we see the water trickling down with hints of blood in it. As it goes down the drain, the camera dissolves into a shot of her eye, and it slowly pulls back, and we see each beat getting slower, and we see her die in front of us. And it's just, it's it's so incredibly, incredibly well done. And like you said, taking the time, not only taking the time, the scene took seven days to shoot. Seven days for like three minutes of movie. Yeah, like you can't you can't make a movie like that. But at the same time, the exquisite nature of it is just so so incredibly well done. You almost feel it's the culmination of everything someone had learned, and everything and all the experiences someone had gained, all coming together in this one scene, the most shocking and violent scene audiences had ever seen before it to that point. And we now. But part of the reason it was so shocking was he did such an excellent job building up to that point. Like I said, that when you get to the actual murder, you do not have to physically see knife penetrating anybody to get the full effect out of that scene. And once again, I would argue that, you know, being, you know, in, in today's movie, when, like, you know, the Red Wedding scene from like a... a uh, Game of Thrones or something, spoiler, when, you know, you, you have the really graphic violence of that scene, that's telling you, mm-hmm. right? That is telling you what violence is, right? Showing you, having you feel it, right? Like you were lo- like, like once again, like you were locked with someone for four hours and now you get to experience exactly what your character feels. Like that is what he is showing you in this film without telling you what violence is. He's showing you what violence is rather than explaining it, it rather than having it explicitly laid down. For what it's worth, I think there is, I think there's a different, merit to the gratuitousness of a game of thrones that's it does something it just does something different that's, I think that's maybe built into the, that's built into the style of it i think yeah. that's I, I don't know that i would call that a condemnation of one or the other they are they're aiming for different things game of thrones is artistically gory oh and i don't i don't mean to say that one is better i absolutely agree they they're, they do different things yeah. but at the same time i think that there is there's room for can, both yeah exactly no but and also i don't think the it's, red it's not an indictment of psycho that it does not have this additional exposure and then the vice versa for game of thrones as well because you can still get the emotional impact by telling very graphically because that you know that's that's three seasons into a film and it's like you know there's a quarter of the cast you know like just up and gone for us and i kind of recognize that there is a kind of 
that that telling it in that manner had its own emotional effect, which I'm you know I'm a fan of that series as well, and I'm a fan of that scene in particular. But there is you know diff they do different things and they are used to be different for different purposes as well. And I think that you know Hitchcock in showing this just has a different emotional component to it. And like I said, it's just because it's so masterfully done. Is so what's, is what's funny is then and then a so after this scene, the movie starts to really become what it essentially is, which is you know, a low-budget, slightly campy horror film. Mm -hmm. um, because after after the shower scene, we lose our main character. So the only person we have to really attach ourselves to at this point is, is good old Norman. And the movie becomes essentially just a procedural after that because we're just trying to find out what happened to Marion Crane. Because the fact that she got killed, this wasn't this wasn't premeditated. I mean, she just happened to be in the very wrong spot at the very wrong yes. time on her uh, her little journey to Fairfield or Fairville, California. Yeah. <laughs> um, A town of no murders or suicides on the books. Yeah. Well, you know. Until. <laughs> well, no, I think on the books, that's uh, yeah. that's the key here. He, uh, the yeah. deputy sheriff, says that on purpose. Yes, yes. No, but I think I think that's that's really perceptive, Nicole. Where you you talked about we we are when 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 Marion Crane is murdered, we are alone and we are with Norman. And yeah, because we don't have a relationship with anybody else in this yeah. film. You know, no, he breaks rule number one. We yeah. don't have a relatable character, and he does that normally. That's bad. Normally, those rules don't have to be broke. You know, breaking a rule of writing is fine. It, it, you don't need to follow the dogma of those rules. But if you're going to break them, you need to break them on purpose. And this was about as purposeful as possible. Well, you got to know giving the rules you this before you can break them. And he yeah. knew the rules. No, so. he, he understood yeah. what he was doing, basically leaving us in a room with a dead body going... Well, well, now what? Yeah. We're only fifty minutes in. Yeah. Like, what, where are we going? Well, I mean, you got to remember too that many. I mean, many people might not have guessed that Norman was the murderer at that point either, because you know we get we we when the, when Marion gets murdered, we go through and we and he he shows us the house, right? Yeah. We see the house. We see, you know, Norman. We hear him yell because we can hear Arguing people yelling. With his mother. Oh, yeah, like mother. Oh God, mother, blood. Well, no, again, and that was comes down. It was and, my fault. It was my fault exclusively. I didn't notice the wig. Oh, like, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not saying okay. most people probably thought it was the mother. It's just that, and because of that, the next person that enters the frame, when you're in the middle of this mind state where it's like, oh no, I'm alone. What do I? What I'm just in this movie by myself. Yeah. And then Norman shows up on the scene, and even though he's in the middle of uh, disposing of a body, you still have to go. Okay, you, you yeah. must be who I'm supposed yes. to attach to yeah. right yeah. now, and. You just you you have to go with him because there's no one else to go with. So and then I think there's another kind of fun point too, and I wanted to kind of allude to it where Hitchcock has this slightly slightly fanciful obsession with like the the small mundanities of life. So when Marion Crane decides she's going to steal the money, we the next scene we, uh, when she steals it and she goes home, we see her packing her things. She's in her underwear again, of course, black yes. underwear this black time. Black underwear this yeah, time. Black yes. underwear this time. Yes. So, Apparently, that is why Hitchcock insisted that everyone be at the theater on time. Yes. Was so that they got as much Janet Lee as possible in her underwear. And thank you, Alfie, for that. I appreciate it. No, Lines so, around the block. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but when when. When she steals the money, he, he deliberately gives us this shot. He could have, you know, he could have avoided this. But no, he gives us this slow, you know, scene where the, the envelope's on there. And, you know, we're not necessarily, we haven't learned that she's stealing the money. We learn it as, 
you know, she is packing her bags. We see the we, we see the money, we see her in her underwear, and then we see that she is in fact emptying things from her closet, moving them, packing things up, right? She is moving forward with the elements of the story. Now, at that most crucial moment in her murder, we then get Norman coming into the room, seeing the horror, and he's and it's a, it's an excellent scene because he runs in and he looks and he goes to the bathroom. He sees what's there, and then he immediately spins. He spins. I'm acting the scene. He spins away, and he puts <laughs> he he, ca he clasps his hand over his face. He's as horrified by this as yes, he, yeah, as we as are. as we yeah. are, yes. <laughs> and so we then see that relatable aspect, right? That's the key within this. This isn't this the psycho of this film now appears to be just as horrified by the scene as well. And then, once again, I think maybe that's a, uh, an attempt to make him more relatable to us, right? To connect us to oh, Harlem also. I assumed, part and part, that that was the whole reason he did that. Yes. Because, that, I mean, that's the first time Norman Bates hasn't seemed like a timid bird of a kid running a motel. That's that's the first that's the first instantly relatable human emotion he shows, is yes. the shock at the scene. Yes. It's the first one that aligns with what the audience is thinking. But then he makes the decision. Right, he knows who's done this, mother's done this. And now, he needs to cover up for this. He begins to pack her up, right? The same way that Janet Lee made the decision and and you know to to go get away with the crime, he then packs her up as well. And he folds up and cleans up the aspect of his life and puts her in the trunk and then disposes of everything, right? It washes away, right? The swamp, Including the money. The swamp, yeah, because it wasn't about that, right? She had yeah. folded and hid the money up from him. He just tossed all of her effects into the trunk of the car and like a good well, swamp, that's how, it cleans And that's how we know it's, it's it's not even personal because it's not, it's yeah, it's not like he's it trying. It's for reasons beyond. Yeah, it's reasons beyond. What brought Janet Lee there. Yeah, I mean, this isn't, this isn't like a roofie, I'm going to steal all the tourist money thing. I mean, he doesn't even look for any valuables or anything. He just cleans up the mess and moves on. So yeah. that's how we know this is, there's, deeper psychology at play like this wasn't this wasn't just you know them trying to you know get one over and I you really know. I really like that aspect of this movie where a lot of what a lot of the procedural side of this that we're obviously about to get into mm -hmm. centers around things that Norman Bates is so oblivious of that they are they're actually chasing the wrong yeah, thing well, like they're chasing money they're looking for a car that she doesn't have yeah. motivation well, like I, and there are so many loose there's so many of, loose threads yeah one of the interpretations i had read on this was that really the money's just you know basically the macguffin in here to keep the story going because ultimately i mean it makes no difference to norma it really doesn't make any difference at all but that's what that's what everyone is is i mean for, chasing it's, it's to in, get to the base of the story, even though it's not that important. I mean, for what it's worth, if what is it, if Marion had just left town without the money, and no one knew where she was after three days, and she, the story would have just happened without Arbogast the P.I. Yeah. He's, that's literally the only difference. Well, that's what I mean. We would have never known. Like, nobody would have been looking, because nobody was looking for her. They were looking for the money. Or no, well, no, that's the thing. Arbogast was the only person looking for the money. Her sister just wanted to know where she where was. Where she was, yeah. And so did the boyfriend. Like, they were, the money only mattered to one party. Mm -hmm. And granted, it led to another murder. But other than that, the money's impact on the story is almost negligible. No, it's, it's, it just seems super important up front because that's what everybody was chasing her for. But now that she's dead, who fucking cares? Well, no, but that's what, what, what she was chasing through the money as well. It's an, it's an interior-exterior thing as well, right? We... It's it's meant it's meant to juxtapose the actual the actual psychosis of Norman, and the supposed motivations of why someone does something. Right, Hitchcock's relaying to us that what ultimately drives human nature are these perhaps more petty concerns. But Marion has larger desires than the money itself as well. 
Norman and her and 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 his mother has I almost said her mother. <laughs> Norman has a different set of motivations that once again we we're still questioning as well, right? This is this becomes the suspense. Well, because of nor- the thing. money's kind of a normal motivation. We understand that motivation, but by him, just you know, when that money goes down into which he the had lake no knowledge with her, of, which, he, which he had no knowledge of it about, he, he didn't know the money was there. Well, when and, he threw but the, also, he wasn't looking for it because you would think, you know, you, you know, he's been running a small hotel. Like if shit like this happens, you go through and look through any value. You know, that would be something that a normal I mean, person you, might actually do. But that was completely not motivating whatsoever to him yeah. i mean if he was interested in self-preservation he wouldn't he would have relocated his mother dead or alive to uh, somewhere aside from off the main highway in a motel that's not a smart move <laughs> so he so you guys rightly soon after the murder we then get the introduction to the second half of the film which is the part two part two which is the uh, uh marion's sister uh, uh marion crane's sister she, uh, travels to was it Fayetteville or something? Fairville. Or? Fairville. Fairville. And meets with her lover. Fairvale. Fairvale. Yeah. Meets with her lover, and questioning where uh, th- where she is. Obviously, the, she stole the money, and her sister is aware of that. The assumption being that she would go to her lover, and this is where she would be. So she comes there looking for him, and he, of course, has not seen her. And then, of course, the next major character that intrudes on the scene is Arbogast. And Arbogast, our PI, and he comes in, once again, representing the businessman, wanting to get the money back and moving on with this scenario. And this becomes the driving force of what happened to Marion. And he, of course, searches through town, right, assuming that she was around, but not necessarily knowing where it would be. And he, of course, stumbles upon the Bates Motel. Right, the place that people really kind of forgot was there. Right, it's off the main highway. It's still there. The well, yeah, lights the, weren't even. Yeah, the, the lights hi- weren't yeah, even the on. Yeah, the highway moved, so it's not it's not real accessible now. You just forget about the formalities. Yeah. When it's some, sometimes like this, as Norman says to him. But we get this, you know, we get the sense that you know something is odd. Once again, Norman. Once again, not suave. And I think once again, p- criminals themselves are not entirely in charge of themselves. Also, right. But he's Norman not. Pr- he's not even necessarily a criminal as much as he is a a a psych- case well no, but <laughs> but it's this, it's the same way that 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 Marion's lack of guile represents her innocence Norman's lack of guile represents the fact that he thinks himself innocent yes I mean this is what it's this relates like you know it's my, one of my favorite things it's like uh, in, a, in a crime film it's like well I'm nervous and he's like well you're nervous because you didn't do it you know he doesn't get nervous in front of cops Fucking thieves and murderers, they don't get nervous in front of cops. Like, no, like, people, you know, it, it's so it's this idea that you have through this Norman's reaction to Arbogast and the questioning that moves forward with this as well. And, you know, as we move forward, I, we get to the next one of my another one of my favorite scenes is, of course, uh, Arbogast's fate. Should we get yes. to this right now? Or is there anything we need to cover before we cover how Arbogast gets killed? Um, I, I think it's important to note that by this point, even though Norman Bates was supposed to be our handhold. As soon as he dumps the car in the swamp, that's over. Like we lose another, we lose another protagonist mm-hmm. at that scene because you can't, you can't follow him to pushing that car with the dead body. And you can't relate to that character. Well, and I also, I, I remember, I felt like that hollowness. And this is, this has been carried through in horror movies. Moving over, you know, you can't trust the cops and stuff like that in horror right. movies. Like they're not going to help you in shitty situations. And when that car goes down. And then Abergast comes. It's like we already know there's nothing for him to find. I mean, he could find Norman, but there's nothing that he's looking for that he's going to find yeah, he, there. Yeah. So this is not going to end well for him. Yeah, like, he is not going to find what he is looking. There we for. go. Right. He's looking for something. He's at. He's, he's not, yeah. He's, what he's going to find is and what it, he's and, looking and for. And so that's why it, that that 
built a particular level of tension for me because, you know, like, I know that this guy's trying to find something that he is not going to find. Like, yeah, the he's bomb find... has been reset. Yeah. yeah. To use <laughs> yes. Ryan's analogy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that that's, once again, so so fucking clever by Hitchcock to, to, to move this forward again. And, you know, we get, we the, the bomb gets set another time as well, right? Because Arbogast, in, in seeking this out, and, I mean, Arbogast is a sly guy. I mean, the character's not, you know, he is not no, foolish. He's, he's smart. I'll tell you the truth. I do mind. You see, if it doesn't gel, it isn't aspect. Again, this ain't gelling. It's not coming together. Yeah, and he, I think, under he. Well, he, he knows that 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 Norman's a, a suspect character, but we know that like he's not going to find what he's looking for there, and this is only going to end badly for him. Yes. <laughs> he, he he once again, I think, is a shrewd judge of human nature and human character. But you know, Norman but is it, not this your is normal way, slice of Yeah, life. this yeah. is going way deeper than like the normal shit that he's used to encountering. Yeah. I gotta give it a second here. Okay. I, I got are, distracted. Are we, we going to move into that scene? Okay, well, I, I got distracted because I, I, I started thinking about other horror movies where the cops come in. You're like, oh, they're going to. You're like, no, this isn't. They're yeah. not going to fix anything. Yeah. Although, actually, I guess for what it's worth, maybe I didn't. I don't remember. This was like 15 seconds ago. I should remember whether I mentioned this or not. <laughs> um, I think it is important to note that Arbogast isn't portrayed like a police officer. Well, though. he's a private investigator. Yeah, and he he is very much, even in the vernacular used by characters within it, he's not the law. No. He's just an investigator. And the way that he comes across, the way the police officer, I mean, the deputy sheriff has some degree of personality, sort of. He's got sort of a curmudgeonly thing going on. But the other police officer was a robot. Yes. I mean, Arbogast can at least talk. Well, the other, yeah, the other police officer was just there to make you uncomfortable. Yeah. Which is basically what... He's a how, specter. Which is how Hitchcock thought of cops anyways. He was terrified of them. I know, I can relate to that completely. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think moving in, as we move and approach the, the Arbogast murder scene, um, I... I I like this scene again. This is once again, I think you know Hitchcock has these set pieces, and the way that it, the way that Hitchcock builds this Arbogast sequence is is very very clever. Yeah, he has them go up the front stairs to the house. There's yes. a, a, a series, uh, uh, several layers of steps that lead to the house, and he of course goes in, and he, you know, when he when he goes into the house, he you know looks around. He see he looks at the ground floor, uh, and then he notices what we all see as well, right? The the second story, right? We we and he is of course searching for mother. He's already talked to Norman at this point, realized yeah. there's something Off. up. Yeah, there's something yes. up at the old Bates Motel. And it feels like he's about to be on to something because he's put together all the pieces. He knows that Norman is lying to him. He knows where uh, he, knows, he knows where the murder took place. He knows all these things. He knows where she stayed. He knows, yeah, she, knows he know, she was yeah. there. He knows okay, she was fair, there. Fair. She, well, he doesn't he, know quite that much, but it feels like he's about to put a bunch of puzzle pieces together. Well, yeah, because he looks at the book and he sees the fake name, but it has the right time. So he's, you know. And Norman confirms. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, she used a fake name. Yeah. After, after a lot of browbeating. Yeah, yes. exactly. And also, Norman wants him to go away, mm -hmm. and Arbogast decides, nah. Yeah, there's we're some there's, gonna... there's some more to to to, to well, dig into. Also, here. I think Arbogast, right? At least you know, he even asks, "Is she still here?" Yes. Which of yeah. course is not what he meant, right? Yeah. She's like giving him money to remain here and, and hide me. Like, well, it is you know, once again, he's both right and wrong at the same time. And this is once again this duality that plays. His yeah. hunches, his hunches right, but the reality is wrong. 
Yeah. Because the reality so completely mismatches with what he came there to investigate. I know, I know. And we're leading to the last scene. Yes. I know we are. Well, yes. and that, yeah, well, and that's in the mansion. We yeah. finally get to see what's in that other house. Yes. For about 15 seconds. And what a 15 seconds. <laughs> 15 seconds. He goes in. And now we know that Mother is always on the second floor. In fact, he mentions... Um, What's his, uh, the uh, he mentions that this is there? She's in the house, and he knows. Well, maybe she's upstairs. She's an invalid. Yeah, is that the point? No, where? no, no, no. Uh, no, he just. I think he knows what that she. Once again, he's a well, student well, of Nor- human character. Yeah, I mean Norman kind of insinu- You know, like she's very weak. She, you know. There we well, go. That's, yeah. he's that got, she's, Norman has a couple of phases of describing her mother because there's a point where she's almost described as being like able-bodied, and then she he moves to invalid, and then he moves to she's not there. And yeah. I, I don't remember which it well, is. Well, and that that's also part of, that's because that's the psychology behind the mother situation. Yeah, because, he's, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the reality of her is infect, infecting it, his, yes. his, his, his his headspace as well. She she morphs and she changes as, you know, he has to reconcile these different realities he's constructed for himself. And so as Arbogast goes in, now there's this, uh, there's this really great sequence where, once again, you know, Hitchcock shows us and establishes something at the beginning and then returns to it later on. And as Arbogast begins to ascend the stairs, he moves up. And the camera, once again, while very clear, he does, uh, Hitchcock does a deep focus a lot in a lot of scenes. Mm-hmm. Deep focus is when you can when you can really make out the details of something in the foreground and in the background, yes. right? So when we see someone in the Bates Motel and we see the, the house, which is further back in the same shot, we can see both the motel and the person looking at the house and the house clearly. When Arbogast finally comes into the house and as he slowly moves up these stairs to find the truth of about Mother, we suddenly see the camera disembodied. It, it, it shows him walking up the stairs and we see it above him. But instead, the, the deep focus is gone. And in fact, the background now is flooded out because it's daytime, right? It's bright and mm-hmm. yet it's out of focus. And Arbogast seems to be moving up the stairs ever so strangely. And as he, of course, gets to the top of the stairs, the camera jumps to the top, right? We see a complete overhead shot of the upstairs itself. We see Mother's room, we see its relationship to the stairs, and as Arbogast, of course, comes up to the stairs, Mother, right, who he had seen opening the door slowly right before this, suddenly emerges from there. We see how quickly she comes upon him. It's just two steps, and Mother is right on top of him. We see the flash of the knife, and we see Arbogast at the top of the stairs, and it's very, very, it's, it's quick, but it is so effective we see that he has a slash of blood across mm-hmm. uh, diagonally across his face and that is actually that actually occurs it happens so quickly but that blood is actually made there and hitchcock talked about how they had you know they had a, almost a um a piece of, of of string that was soaked in blood and they drew it across his face at that moment in the scene so we see it streak across his okay. face and then he begins to tumble backwards, and the shot of him ascending the stairs mirrors the shot of him almost comically, it seems like, disembodied, falling down the stairs it is, as there he is stumbles a, there backwards. There is a very, like, disembodied feel to it, yeah, it's like, all, it's, when he falls down the stairs. I mean, I think many people looking at it today would almost seem comical, right? The idea that someone would fall down the stairs, like, like stumble down them backwards, you know, with arms flailing around and I mean, not I fall down. I mean, I didn't want to kill your flow, but I thought it looked ridiculous. Personally. Yeah, no, it's. But. I mean, because yeah, because it's it's stylized. I mean, he, he he is falling back, and it's. And once again, I think the psychological intent is to relay the surprise. Like he he would almost be consciously moving away, but so shocked at what had happened to him. I think we see almost, we see almost Arbogast's experience of like, 
you know, what, what has happened to him? And he, and he tries to get away, and yet he, of course, stumbles down, and we get a very, very quick and brutal scene of, the, of Mother coming upon him, raising the knife very quickly. We see the knife shot itself, and as it brings down, we hear the, the, the blade go in and Arbogast screaming afterwards, and then it fades out to the sister and the lover in the dark waiting for Arbogast to appear. And I think that, once again, that scene, shorter than the murder scene, Mm -hmm. but still sets up very much the same themes, right? He has built the suspense. We know he's going to see Mother. And then he cues us into what is coming up by the change in how the story is being relayed. The camera work itself changes. The the focus changes. The scene changes. We're built into the suspense of what we know is coming. And then it happens through us. And I know, like I said, I know it's highly stylized. I think ridiculous is the right term, especially to modernize. But I just, you know, maybe it's because I like him and I'm giving him a pass on that kind of on that scene as well. I mean, the first scene... Certainly, I will give you, it's extremely effective. I thought this one was, because it was the second one, I think is what matters. I felt like it took way too long. Right, okay. <laughs> In spite of how short that scene was, it almost felt like it should have, and maybe this was a technique that wasn't in vogue yet, like most of them weren't by the 60s. Um, it almost felt like, because we knew the score. We knew it was the mother with a knife. Yeah. I didn't need to know that he fell down the stairs. I practically think that, detracted from it. Right. I think it would have been better if it had just been that Arbogast was in, just about to do something. He was about to, you know, give us more information, which we basically, the Arbogast scene, we learn literally nothing in that scene. Right. All we No, we really don't. All we learn is that someone else is about to learn something. Yeah. And then they get killed. Someone else is about to meet mother. Yeah. <laughs> and then it doesn't happen. And I feel like there was actually a lack of economy to that. I didn't I didn't like that scene as much as a result. Right. Like I again I like the intent. I really like the idea of having a 15 minute scene where a smart dude puts pieces together and then fuck all gets done with it. But, and then it basically makes no difference. Yeah, but yeah. I would, I almost wish it was less ceremoniously concluded. No, I, I, I mean, I, obviously I disagree, but I think this, this, the oddity of the of the overhead shot, right? The the like we're gonna like schematically draw this thing out. It's it's so I think it's. That. I think you could have done that. I think that part could have stayed in. Because I just every part after the knife hits the first time, I don't I mean think the, yeah, the slash across yeah, the face. Yeah, yeah, I think this. And then a fade to black going back to the other told the whole story. I don't I don't see a reason to have her follow him down the stairs and stab him again. I don't think that contributed to it. And but it was, I mean that's like, yeah, the whole the whole like yeah fall is, yeah. is is really goofy the way it happens. Yeah, I, like I, I said, there was there I was don't a think good disassociativeness about it because it's such like an awkward yeah, no, like, I, fall down the stairs. Yeah, I think it because but once again, <laughs> we know what he's seeing, right? We know that he that Arbogast sees Norman as mother. I mean, we you look at the look on his face is both. We think it's the shock of being stabbed, but it and it is that. But it's also the fact that who stabbed him? Fucking Norman in dressed as mother yeah. has stabbed him. I mean, yes. Like we 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 have to look at what Arbogast is seeing all of a sudden as he realizes this, and that's why Hitchcock wanted to extend that moment, right? So that. The, the, the shock of Arbogast being A, stabbed, and then B, seeing who's fucking... Fu realizing how wrong he was. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's the key. Like, Arbogast yeah. suddenly in that moment is realized uh, exactly how yeah. wrong he was. That's fair. Okay, so, but, yeah, I, like I said, mainly because I've probably seen this movie a dozen times <laughs> or so, but I, like, I've slowly 
like anything, you know, maybe I've fallen in love with its imperfections oh, oh, it, a little oh, it to acts, a certain degree. Well, that's <laughs> if we ever do True Grid, I've fallen down that hole because I've seen. True I know we're gonna have to get a, we're gonna have to get someone an impartial person to review that movie too. Because like... I've I've seen. I mean, I don't watch movies more than twice most of the time. I see movies I really like a dozen times. I have literally seen that movie at least thirty times. I've yeah. never watched that one. Because oh, it, good. And, okay. She and could the, be our. She could be. Okay, our there monster. we go. And but it, I do love the Coen Brothers. And yeah. it's it's just I don't want to get off on a tangent so I'll do this as rapidly as I can but it's I liked it the first time and the movie has become more perfect the more I've watched okay, it okay yes like everything everything that even seemed like it was like Matt Damon's character is the best example of this if we ever do review the movie there will be a lot to talk about with casting against type okay but he became the right choice over time yes in kind of a sinister overly subjective way but anyway back to Psycho yes so Arbogast is dead dead yeah. alright dead so now we begin. That we have no, we have no PI yeah, to come and, and bring this information back to us. But we are left with a character. And after this murder, we're left with someone other than Norman and Mother, right? We are yeah. left with the with the sister and the. We got the duo. The, yeah, the duo. And then, I mean, are we going to clean up plot elements here? Can we just move to the final climax of the movie? I mean, is there I anything... mean, yeah, I mean, we're still just kind of going through procedurals because basically, you know, everyone else is still looking for Marion. Yeah, they go, they go to the local sheriff. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they get so the story. So that's yeah. probably important. The, so. The local sheriff situation. Yeah, he. They go to the sheriff. He reveals that oh, you know, Arbogast was going to see Mrs. Bates, and I love, I love the sheriff's wife, by the way, who's in, <laughs> who's in the scenes a lot yes. as well. Uh, you know, um, oh, they reveal the story that oh, you know, he's going to see Mrs. Bates. She's like, oh, Norman took a wife, and you no, know, he's going to see his mother. And then <laughs> you see the change on their face, and they're like, well, you know, uh, mother's been dead for ten years. You yeah, know, mother, <laughs> there is no Mrs. Bates, and so. You know, we we then are clued into what's going on here, and of course, it heightens the drama of yeah. you know. Well, well what, it's utter confusion at this point. Yeah, what, I mean, we, what is up with mother? I mean, we knew so little, and so much of it is still wrong. Yes, and that also there is obviously this has affected Norman. Also, you know, his his mother. We're told that his mother dies with uh, her lover and in, in the house yes. in their room. Yes, she, and we're told that she murders her lover and kills herself. And of course, Norman discovers the bodies and in bed. So, you know, she even whispers that line, you know, they were discovered yeah. in bed. In you know, like this is Just some, for the melodrama. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and so now, you know, we get the scene. And later on, we get uh, later later on, they meet the, the, the two couple, the lover and, and her sister, meet the sheriff outside. And he informs them, oh, I've been up there. You know, everything seems fine. Norman's there. I, you know, sorry, I couldn't help you. I couldn't help mm -hmm. you. Well, that obviously Thanks a lot, police. Yeah, Jeez. really. The the truth seekers. And yeah, well, like I said, that was what is going back to you know in horror movies, like the police are never that helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so we get back, and um, now we get the you know once again the, the the famous climax of the scene. Are we ready to dive into this bad boy? I yeah, think let's so. Dive All right, let's into do it. This. So we get our uh, we get the uh, the lover and uh, her Marion's sister. They go and they're going to pose as a couple. Right, moving forward, and then they're going to separate out, and they're going to locate, you know, try to find clues for Marion. They're going to try to find, you know, uh, when they when they're out finding clues, they find the absurd small smidgen of paper with s some numbers been added to or subtracted from yes, forty thousand yes, dollars. Like yes. they, now they've had a reason to move further with the case, right? I mean, not the most, not the most elegant of. <laughs> plot points in the Better film Better on a second watch. The first watch, we were watching in a crowd, and there was there was laughter when that happened, because <laughs> it just it sounds so silly the way yes. she says it. But like, this, this proves her point. But once again, both right, right? They, they know something has happened here. They know that it's They've got one. evidence. They've got the evidence. Yes. This is literally forward. the first time yeah, anyone is, yes. has laid their hands on actual on evidence. Something. 
Yeah. So what that what they then decide to do is that the the uh, the lover is going to distract Norman in the office, and her sister is going to go up to the house to speak to mothers, right, to get the truth finally. Now, I wanted to set up the the sister moving towards the house because up until this point. Every time we have seen someone ascending or, or going to or from the house, it has been by the stairs in front of the house, yes. right? We could almost, I think, seemingly kind of have this be the idea that we are going through Norman's constructed reality, right? The reality he's projecting about his mother is kind of represented by him or, or other characters ascending through the stairs. Well, now we know that this isn't the case. And I think to demonstrate this and also to heighten the sense of finally being that we might actually get to the truth about mother... The sister goes the back way. She doesn't go up by the stairs. She ascends by the slope uh, in front of the house, up by the, you know, up by the bushes. She mm -hmm. goes through that, and the scene mirrors what Arbogast was uh, as Arbogast was approaching. Right? We see her moving forward, and the the background is out of focus, and we see her moving up. We cut to the house, moving up slowly, slowly, slowly. We see her again moving up further as well. The two scenes are mirrored in the way that she approaches the house because she's finally approaching something different. Right? Hitchcock's cluing us in that someone else is getting very close to the truth and in a different way this time. And then we get, you know, I, you know, some some scenes through the house. We see the famous scene in the bedroom where Mother's imprint is actually I on the bed. I, I, I do love that. Yeah, it is. It's quite good. good. And also, I should we should mention too that Norman, in between Arbogast's murder and their arrival, has moved Mother down to the fruit cellar. Yes. And we actually see the same overhead shot of. Norman carrying his mother, but once again, still maintaining the illusion, right? We hear mother's voice in these scenes also. I, mean, I think we've failed to mention this, that whenever mother has kind of come into the story or whenever any other character has perceived mother, it's been as a disembodied voice. They have heard mother. They've seen her, you know, yes. they've seen yeah. her in the window. And as Norman moves the mother down all before, once again, sorry for the out of order, but as Norman moves his mother down before they ever get there to investigate you know, Arbogast's death or why he didn't ever return back from the Bates Motel, right? We see him carry her down and we hear her speaking to him like, don't, are you going to lock me away again? You're going to, you know, put yeah. me down somewhere? Like, you know, you it, the, the contempt with what she has for Norman is expressed in that. And so the Marion sister, of course, goes up to the bedroom, rifles around things. We get a good, we get a good scare cut where she's seeing mirrors within, within mirrors mm -hmm. within the bedroom and she frightens herself as she catches her own reflection in, in two mirrors in the room. Uh, it's once again, you know, very, very well done. As she begins to move down, uh, Norman, of course, is clued into what is happening, and he knocks the boyfriend. They, they scuffle in the office. He, he he knocks the boyfriend out. He gets away, and Marion's sister sees Norman coming up, right, coming up, ascending the stairs, and she runs down into the ba into the uh, stair uh, uh, the cellar the cellars uh, the cellar, and she, of course, comes upon the fruit cellar. And then we get one of the most famous scenes where she approaches Mrs. Bates. Mrs. Bates, she's turned away from her. She, she puts even a, says it. She says Mrs. Bates. Mrs. Bates. She puts a delicate hand on her side. Mother, of course, spins around and reveals this, the preserved corpse of Mother itself. And she reacts. She flips back. And David, you actually mentioned this too. As she is approaching Mother, the the uh, the light the light bulb that is hanging from the ceiling is right in the frame itself. It's it's blinding yeah. like yes. white light that comes yeah. through this. And as she moves forward and she grabs her, the sister reacts. She throws her hands back and screams and she strikes the light, right? And it moves back and forth and it creates this, once again, the stillness but the dynamism. Nothing's moving but it's moving because the light's moving. And then, of course, her scream is followed by Norman's scream as he runs into the doorway of the fruit cellar, dressed as mother with the knife. Yes. And then the boyfriend comes in and saves the day and knocks Norman out. And, of course, we see him writhing in his arms as he's being overpowered by the boyfriend. And that, once again, one of the more famous reveals of it as well. It is both tense and 
simple in its execution and it's the way that it is revealed. And I think it's, once again, very, very famous for a reason. So, now we know the story. <laughs> yes. And no. But we don't know everything. No. And they tack it at the end. We yes. do not. All right. So, so okay, so to help us to help us get through all of the weird psychology that's process. going on here, because you know, there's no mother. We've got Norman clearly. Oh, there's has, mother. Yeah, mother's well, there. Mother's <laughs> there. But mother mother is, is only part of Norman's you know, psychology. There's, you know, the the fact that he's dressing up is like these are all hard things for a 1960s audience to process. So right. what do we need? And thank goodness. We need a psychiatrist yeah, that explains everything that just happened to us. And man, <laughs> man. So Hollywood has a bad history of accidentally influencing culture in some deleterious ways. I can see it, it's not as bad. I, I still believe, based on what I've seen, that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest just on balance has ruined more lives than any movie. <laughs> I, I, it turned, there are people who are actually fucked up. Yeah. And a lot. I, I feel like A Beautiful Mind did that for, for us. Possibly. Because P possibly. people don't understand anything about schizophrenia. Yeah. And that yeah. movie's only making it worse. But in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, for those who uh, for those who haven't seen it, it turns out insane people are just having a good time, as far as I can tell. And then they get pills, and that makes them sick. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. it's Nurse Ratchet who's who's who, fucking yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, she's people. really the enemy here. Yeah, she's why they're all there. Anyway, um, so in the same vein, the psychiatry scene at the end of this. Now, granted, I'm not defending psychoanalysis. Freud was a highly skilled rhetorician, much more than he was a scientist. But goddamn, that scene, and granted, the, the delivery is great. They get the most, it's, yes. It's like real deadpan. And no. <laughs> like, it's, it's got, and it, the guy looks smart, and what he says feels deep. But goddamn it, that is the worst. In the same way you're not supposed to reveal the monster, because that, like, ruins, the, this fucking was the worst monster reveal I've ever seen in a movie. Well, why do you think Hitchcock did it then? Because he was fascinated with psychoanalysis. Okay. It was, I think it was also just part of, part of the times. Like, he couldn't have just, he, he, he couldn't, he couldn't rely on the audience to, to kind of put all this together at that point. Because, I mean, we're and dealing why with, should they? Yeah, and we're, because we're dealing with, like, some weird stuff that film hadn't really covered before. So, it, it, like, it was necessary for the time, but in retrospect, it adds, like, a weird campiness that was in the long run maybe unnecessary for the film i mean in the same way and you will hear me as we do these <laughs> my my experience with film has taught me that economy is king in the way that stories are told that scene i almost just would rather have not been there it and and I would rather just talk about what the fuck just happened with the people around me rather well, and than it's one of those is, and, it. and it's also, yeah, I, I like I said, I think that might have been a little bit of the times like we needed some something to wrap it up. And obviously none of the characters in the movie were even completely aware of the psychological dealings <laughs> of Mr. Norman Bates. So like he felt like he had to in some way explain to us that there is a split personality working here 
that, you know, there is... I think the best thing that comes out of this is that you get that the world is a bigger place than you can imagine. And I appreciate that message. The idea that there is the possibility for a mind to be as broken as Bates's. Well, and he's But the, the way that is presented oh, is terrible. ridiculous. Yeah, it's terrible. But he, but he, it, there is a, there is a there is kind of a sense I don't want to say that there's like a need for 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 you know just breaking it down as ridiculously as <laughs> the psychiatrist does at the end, but there almost is a need to bridge the gap even with the characters in the film because they still don't even understand the whole implications of, you know, why Arbogast and Marion were, were killed. I mean, they understand that they were killed, but, you know, they don't understand that it's, you know, like this deep psychological issue where Norman is, you know, a split personality and, you know, it, it just it's just like a sign of the times. Like, they needed some way to, like, explain that so that you could understand, like, whoa, this guy's really <laughs> messed up. Now, in hindsight... We could have gotten that out of the film, and we've got enough knowledge about these psychiatric disorders that we could have put that together. And I'm just not sure that a 1960s audience would have been able to do that as well. But it does it does kind of add to, like, the general campiness that you feel. <laughs> um, because when you watch this movie now, more than a horror movie, it, it can almost be looked at as a black comedy. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's almost more black comedy, but I, I don't feel like that's how people would have interpreted it at was the Was there time. such a thing as black comedy back that's then? That's what I mean. I, yeah, I, there's, I, there's some good black, yeah. Yeah. From this era? Yeah. This, I, you get these, you get these like, because once again, you get social criticisms, and uh, especially through a lot of like, you know, society pieces, especially from the 1940s and 50s as, you know, as film gets a little more self-aware of itself. You do have some, I think, some poignant kind of social criticism that kind of comes from I'd that. And look, I'd have to look at the dates because this was 1960. So I'm trying to think of like black comedy in. Uh, in well, like okay, Sunset then? Boulevard. Sunset okay. Boulevard has a kind of like knowing, a yeah. knowing humor to the to the ridiculousness of the characters involved. Okay. And it, you know, I mean, we get it through William Holden, the main character, as he as he goes into the world of this age, this this former film star great. Mm-hmm. You know, he we we get revealed the kind of critique and humor of her of her psychosis. Yes, and. I mean, so it is. It does have these kind of. I mean, the the black comedy is always, of course, subversive, right? They they play against type, where something violent is done in a comical way, and yet is rather horrible. I mean, the Coen Brothers' violence in their films is very, very stark and real, and yet somehow oddly comic in a way. And it has its it has a, a meaning beyond the mere effect of the thing. And so, in this sense, I mean, it it, it does have elements of, of black comedy to it. But why they, you know, I mean, Hitchcock had to educate his audience. Yeah. And I think that's a responsibility that we can't look back on and shirk him as a result of it. To modernize it, it seems absurd because, you know, psychoanalysis has fallen out of favor for 50 years now. But at the time, it was a force to be reckoned with. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what what everybody, everyone sat on a couch four times a week back then and just blathered on and on and on and on. (laughs) Well, but I've also watched, like, um, uh, the... uh, was the father from from Arrested Development? Jeffrey Tambor. I watched yes. some of the first episodes of his movie where he is a transgender person. Okay, I've not seen that transitioning. One. Oh, okay. transitioning through the film, and that film has very much psycho elements. Psycho elements where they have to like, you know, bring an audience up to speed about what it what the process of, be, of being trans is, about what transitioning actually entails. They have to expl- they have to educate your audience. And I mean, just think about once again, we see these things happen today, where you know, an audience fifty years ago that will have experienced or understood 
what being transgender means, they're going to look back on something like this and be like, how rube-like was the fucking audience in 2015? It's funny because I'm thinking about it now because even Psycho isn't the greatest name because it's not that Norman was, I mean, Norman had like a split personality disorder. It's not that he was just like a, a you know, run-of-the-mill psychopath per se. No, I mean, Mother is. I mean, I mean yeah. his, his construction of his Mother His construction is. of Mother is a psychopath, but he's, you know, more of like a split personality, which yeah. is a psychological issue, but it's not like he was just a straight-up psychopath. Yeah. I mean, the name is poignant, though. Yeah. I can see why you would have picked it. I don't know. It's just this flies in the face of so much of the rest of the elegance that the movie is built on. I... The, Speaking of show, don't tell. Okay, yeah. Just yeah. holy yeah. shit. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's it would have, but still at the same time. I mean, he, he the the level of barriers that Hitchcock would have. I'm not saying intuitively it was understood. Easy, yeah, it, but, the, the level of barriers that I think Hitchcock intuitively understood about the, about the Bates Norman Bates character. I mean, for, for one thing, I mean, the, I think the point of that scene, the point of that scene, is the only other person to say something other than the sheriff is just some guy in a suit when they say. Well, he was in a dress. Why was he in a dress? He's a transvestite. You're like, yeah, no, like, no, like this is this is larger than that because once again, from a, a 1960s audience, man in a dress equals transvestite. There is no deeper issue. And there. even mm. even some of the people watching that at the time wouldn't have understood what the word transvestite yeah, meant exactly. at the time. Like that was still a super niche, probably terminology. Up at and the coming time. terminology. Yeah. yeah. Breaking new ground here. And and yeah, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't a transvestite. He was, he actually, you know, was embodying the mother character. He wasn't doing, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't dressing in women's clothing for yes. a, like a personal psychological need. He was embodying like a whole other person. Yes. Mother, mother, <laughs> mother is real. And yes. Like, that's what he has to explain in that overall. And I think it's just, like I said, I, I, you're absolutely right. I think in the most in the most base area that does draw it down in modern eyes, but it is, it is it is unfortunately necessary. It just is. And like I said, I think that the 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 elements we can see are other films where they have to like you know take a step back and you know bring bring the norm the normies along on where we're going here and what this actually means, and then it's a little look bit more for what it's worth as someone who would consider themselves to be not expert, but certainly well-versed in psychology, I definitely needed an explanation of what the fuck he was trying to get at. Right, okay. The psychiatrist understood something that I have, as a psychology major, no idea what the fuck he was talking about. Yeah, no doubt. That's not a real thing. Oh, yeah, no, and it's, but it's, you know, you get you get art where they, you know, he it's art. I mean, he has license to portray it however he felt was necessary well, I, to do I so. I know, yeah. but, that, but that's, as someone who is way into tight stories, that's really sloppy to me. Well, I think, but also you talk about being a procedural, right? This is this is that's the detective. ex machina practice. Well, yeah, but this is the this is the this is the figuring it out scene, right? This is yeah. the the explanation of the crime. It's actually it's actually an anticlimax. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it brings down, but then but then, I mean, the true end of the film is, of course, another little bit of elegant beauty. No, that part's fine. Yeah, okay, so we get that into... part's okay. It's just he prefaced it with a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, because well, the other the other problem you face is that if you know that you have this the climax of the of the of the fruit cellar scene, how the fuck do you link the climax of the fruit cellar scene to Norman in the room with the blanket, like that? That is a big problem. Like, and I don't you know. Once again, that's what Hitchcock is solving there, right? How do we move from the actual climax of the film to Norman in that beautiful beautiful shot of him? Once again. Far away, we see him up against the wall. Mm -hmm. We see him with the blanket on. 
two cuts close in, and then we see the the, the famous framed shot of him looking down, thinking. You hear mother. We hear mother in his mind. You know. She, you know. Like they're they're watching, and he looks up, and he, and he you know he's aware of what's going on, and then she's like, well, you know, we're we're harmless, right? We're not even gonna we're not even gonna swat that. We see the fly. We're not gonna yeah. even swat that fly. And of course, you know, he looks up, and then we get the dissolve out. We see mother's slight mother's. Uh, skeletal face slightly interposed into this frame. And then, of course, we see the trunk of Marion's car being pulled up out of the swamp, you know, revealing what happened to the money. Yes. Right? The whole, the MacGuffin comes back at the end. Yes, yes. But I think that's the problem Hitchcock faced with that, with the psychologist scene. How do we link those two elements together? Because, I mean, in the end, if, if, if the payoff is that end scene and the crime is the psychologist explaining it, that's okay to me. Because that that end scene, I think, is real. I get the chills. I still watch that fucking thing. I get the chills when that dissolve comes off of Norman's face. I still, I still really, really, really like that scene. I'm not knocking that scene. Oh, and I know, and I think that that's again. If that's the crime that leads to that payoff, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that every time. I'm gonna watch the movie again and edit in here whether I think it makes sense without the psychiatrist. Having now run that experiment, I will say that it is a little jarring to have Norman go immediately from holding the knife to being in his own mother's thoughts. But I think there is actually a third option that would have worked a lot better, where instead of the sheriff and psychiatrist merely saying what they got out of Norman, they could have been in the cell with him trying to talk to him, and he would be responding quizzically and strangely, and then it just transitions to him thinking in his own head after they leave. I think that would have worked significantly better than what Hitchcock actually went with there. Okay, no, good, I yeah. think you can. I, I've read some of the reading I was doing online. A lot of people have made that argument. I think that was even something they discussed in the Truffaut, uh, the the Hitchcock Truffaut right. thing, is that they could have they could have maybe like abbreviated and 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 gotten right back to the action with the Norman scene, and you could have you could have bridged that a little bit tighter um, because it is it is generally thought of to be very anticlimactic that whole psychiatrist scene. Well, and it it even it breaks another one of the golden rules of writing is that it has a one scene character in it. The, another basic rule of thumb is that you should be able to take any character that is in one scene or in one part of a story and remove them. Without the plot falling apart. Yeah, but but still, I mean, this this movie breaks a lot of fucking rules. I mean, this <laughs> no, is no, 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 no. Yeah, but it, that's but normally, like I said before, it normally you can do that with purpose. Yeah. This this seems like a failure of execution to me. Okay. It feels like it. Yeah. The psychiatrist doesn't show up anywhere else. He could. It, it, Hitchcock could have worked him into the story. Well, no, and did not. But you're also you're not supposed to introduce new characters halfway through a film. But you get like Arbogast and the sister, like just like, hey, here's two yeah. new people to connect with. Uh, we got like 40 minutes to wrap this fucker up. Well, and, that's yeah. that's the jaunty, like, <laughs> but that's the jauntiness of the way that it builds. But right. so why didn't the psychiatrist show up there? I, I mean, this you. is yeah, yeah. Like, okay, no, it, yeah. It's just well, his... they didn't they didn't know they needed a psychiatrist yeah. yet at that point. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, like I said, <laughs> the further you get into this, is the problem. I just I think that. You know, we, we also have to realize that Hitchcock's working within a system right now. I mean, the you know, the the board, if they're going to allow trans, you know, a man wearing women's clothing who murders several people in a film, like, do, you know, we don't know the, the, the compromises he had to make to get this thing released as okay. well. Okay, I will grant you that if uh, there's no, I haven't seen any evidence of it, but if the reason why that scene is there is that a man in a suit who represents the production code was claiming, was protesting that they couldn't have a transvestite in the film, 
and they were explaining away why he wasn't, yes. then I absolve Hitchcock of all of these <laughs> accusations. That would be amazing. Yeah. No, I just, I just think I that... don't think... I, I haven't read anything to imply that, but that would be um, that would be fantastic. Good, okay. Because I just... Like I said, I, I, I'll give Hitchcock the benefit of the doubt. I think he's... I think he's solving a problem with that scene, and it's just, you know, it, it like I said, it does, it does, not, it does not detract. I mean, I still am with it. I mean, even after you get through all of that, I mean, the power of that last of the last dissolve just just gets me every time. Gets, it really does. And so, I mean, what do we think of this film? Was this? A, I mean, did I did I, did I do good? I do good. Pick pick Psycho. What? No, I mean, I it's a it's a really important yeah. it's a really important film. It broke no, a lot it. of conventions. It's like I said, it's you know, watching it in hindsight now, it's 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 a little campier than maybe it it was it was you know if you'd watched it originally in 1960. But uh, but what isn't right? Yeah, I mean, but what isn't? And uh, and I don't want. I mean, I don't watch movies like this normally anyway, so I didn't expect to like this. Right. So the fact that I enjoy it is yeah, because I more actually than enough I actually don't watch much in the way of horror. Right. Either. Yeah. Um. But this really kind of you know sums up horror movies like just the whole the the whole thing is 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 everybody has borrowed from this moving forward Absolutely. basically um no. so this is i feel like kind of really the only one you need yeah i don't I wouldn't <laughs> and with hitchcock too because i mean you can look at spy thrillers for this as well i mean but we, when we were watching north by northwest i mean there's that I mean, is a, that's like the original action yeah, film yeah hitchcock has an <laughs> element of extravagance which to our eyes can seem campiness and if if you've never seen North by Northwest. The oh, but ending, that works so well in oh, that movie. I mean, you got to admit, when we were watching North by Northwest together, that last sequence and the end of that movie, I mean, we were applauding. Yeah. Like, how how speaking, hilariously that ends well. Speaking of a good ending, right? just the, the exact opposite of Psycho. The end of North by Northwest, if we don't ever get to it. Um, yeah, it ends with the climax. Speaking of economy, yeah. just holy shit. Like, the way that he does, he does his visual storytelling we know that the two main characters hook up because of the just stupidest one second shot of a train going into a tunnel the end that's yeah the, the end this is the most perfect example of visual storytelling i've ever seen in a movie no and this is but this is the joy of hitchcock you get you know you you he didn't he wanted to spend he wanted to waste no time whatsoever he didn't give a shit about that other than to indicate that it happened. Yeah, because yes. he once again, when you watch Hitchcock films, I mean, North by Northwest has the famous, the famous plane, uh, the plane sequence yes. being traced by the by the plane. That stuff is so so famous for a reason, also. But I mean, as you delve into Hitchcock's work, we have, I mean, Rebecca. I mean, I was, I was. It's been quite a few years since I know, I've seen and that's that why one. I almost picked Rebecca, but I just felt that you know, Psycho would have been, you know, would have been sexier as a podcast title to be honest with you, rather than Rebecca. And people, are like, I mean, the Rebecca, fuck is that? Rebecca, like, just like narrative wise is a little bit dated yes um i mean just in in that it's actually more of like a historical piece right. anyways well and also but as i was kind of i knew i wanted to do a hitchcock but as as we'd done north by northwest which i love but then like vertigo is too jimmy stewarty you know it's got jimmy stewart and that's why i didn't do rear window either which are both really really classic hitchcock films and really do build really do build suspense well but they are you know they're they're not the departure point Right, no. they they are they are of older Hitchcock, and Psycho really is the departure point. There's also Rope, which is his his last film, which has some really Rope 
wasn't his last What's, oh, film. Oh, no, Frenzy. Frenzy is, is Yeah, his Frenzy, last that's what film. I meant. Frenzy, yeah. which has some really intense moments Rope in it as well. Rope is very stagey because it's a one seat. Everything takes place in basically one room. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's correct. But then also, why I didn't want, like, uh, Dalim for murder or, you know, which is, you know, that that's even more procedurally than what we've gone through mm-hmm. as well. Um, but really, str- Strangers on a Train, which I felt I, I would have had Birdman disease, you know, with that one. Like, I'm, I'm a little too close <laughs> to Strangers on a Train. So I would have had Birdman disease. But, you know, with Psycho, it is such a classic film. And, and yet it's something that when people watch, they already know what happened. They, they, they've already known. They already know what's up. And because it is so famous, we have to, once again, watch watch it. But just knowing what knowing what's happening watch how it's happening. Like, this is the brilliance of Hitchcock, which is that he is able to do something and and have these moments of elegance that, once again, you said it before, no one really takes the time to figure out anymore. Like, there just really isn't filmmakers that are devoting that much effort to the craft and the execution of how they relay these elements and build these themes and take the time to, you know, ponder and experience what is actually happening in a scene as well. And Hitchcock will always take the time to set something up properly. And the payoff is nothing greater than his best film, Psycho, 1960. Universal Studio, Universal Studios? Catch it. Catch it, yeah. Is that your final thought? No, I can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, uh, all right, now, are we gonna play psychologist now? We can do the false ending, the anticlimax maybe? Oh, uh, yes, yes, it's definitely an anticlimax. Yeah, we're gonna go into the pervert's guide to to cinema on this one, or we? Uh... Oh, you should. Yeah, I love Zizek, man. I love yeah. some Zizek. <laughs> I'd have to brush up on my Zizek. I have. I've got like nine books of his. Yeah, I've only is... read one, and I think you let me borrow it. Yeah, no, he's he's good stuff. But um, yeah, no, I mean. So Psycho, it is a classic. Like I said, if you know, I I know some of the people we viewed it with, uh, you know, thought it did feel a little bit dated, and it does. But that's not what. You know, you go into it with the with the sense that there there is going to be a little bit of campiness involved in it, but this is this is where it all started for uh, for for all your slasher fic and slasher films moving forward. Right. And given that at the time it was impossible to do a home theater setup, I recommend, if at all possible, that you find a very large screen to watch it on because the way that it is shot is supposed to affect an intimacy that doesn't work on small screens. Right. Mm, mm. Hitchcock shot this film assuming it would fill your whole vision. Yeah. So endeavor to well, watch it that way. Well, in 1960 people did not watch movies at home. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, if you're going to have a pro- I mean if you're going to have a problem with campiness, it's going to be having an additional distance, physical in addition to the temporal distance of it being 50 years old at this point. Do yourself a favor and find a large screen to watch it on. Yeah, any, I mean, any Hitchcock. I mean, this is true, especially for the color films as well. You know, Vertigo and Rear Window. I mean, really, I, those are studies in color and and studies in, in the way that the film is relayed. Also, and those are those are really exceptional to watch in the largest. Oh, the, possible yeah, they're format. they're exceptional films. Yeah, I saw I saw Vertigo on the big screen recently at, at the end zone as well, and it was it's good oh, stuff. Nice. It was really nice. good on the big screen. It just floods in. It's another one I haven't watched in quite a few years. But I mean, once again, for Psycho. You'll go into it thinking you've seen it before, right? Film violence, Psycho, you know what happens. But I think part of the joy of seeing Psycho, because we watched it with people who had never seen it before. Yeah, right? like but, me. But, yeah, I, but also <laughs> I the friends, yeah, several of the friends we watched it you know, hadn't yeah. seen it either. And it's, once again, you, you know what's happening, and you've seen film violence before, but you've never seen it done this way before. And I think that's what you have to kind of pick up on, and just to see that the way it's executed is just, once again, Hitchcockian. In, yes. the, in the most positive sense of that term. Well, if, you know, it, he defined his own style. I know. 
I'd like to have Rylian, you know, like that'd be cool if I could get like, something people would be described start, as Rylian. People start decry, des, what, describing stuff as Riley-esque. Riley-esque, yeah. Yes. I, I'd like to have a adjective named after me. Well, you gotta start producing huge projects of scale. All right, scale. Yeah. All right, we'll this was, we already this covered was actu- that. Actually, what's funny is uh, failure for, scale. For, yeah, for for uh, you know, in terms of uh, Hitchcockian works, this was actually not a project of scale for him. This was a low budget film, mm-hmm. even by his own terms. Yep. Um, it was done on a very small budget. It was not done with the uh, with the A camera team. It was done with like the B camera team. His TV crew His, and actors. Yes, TV crew and actors. Right. And uh, he managed to basically define himself and so many movies going forward by scaling back. No pressure, no diamonds. Substantially. Well, and also I think that there is a. The constraints of a project sometimes require you to be more creative in the yeah. face of in the face of that, and I think that that is a larger theme as well. Where you know if he, you know if he had to think about what he wanted to do, and he realized that his means of accomplishing it were so limited, I really think that his creative juices kind of were set into overdrive with this. To saying, I really you think know, so too. Yeah, and that, it's, that forced his hand on the camera work quite frequently. I mentioned well, fifty millimeter because he filmed almost the whole thing on fifty millimeter prime lenses. Mm-hmm. That forced a large degree of the human perspective because the fifty millimeter lens is the one that is closest to just standard human vision. It doesn't look zoomed in or yep. fish-eyed. Yeah. Um, so it, it tends to give, it, in theater, in theatrical things, in photos it's fine. You use photo 50-millimeter lenses all the time for weddings and stuff. On a theater, that looks claustrophobic to be that close to people. Right. Okay. Okay. And that helped a lot with the making of this movie, on accident. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And it's just, once again, very, very well done. My, one of my favorite Hitchcock. Yes. Well, there's no, there's no denying this is definitely very important. <laughs> so Hitchcock film. I think, it, I think this gets the round table thumbs of approval. Sure. Sure. All right. We can give it Sh- that. Psycho, 1960. Yeah. Check it out. Nicole, do you have any idea what uh, you're, you're the next pick? So, do you have any idea which movie you want? Oh God, I'll have to think about it. Okay. Um, I thought we were gonna maybe discuss the, the Martian with, with a engineer's perspective. Potentially, yeah. The Martian is uh, new enough. We can bounce on back to that since apparently the book was much better. So we'll uh, get to investigate that in uh, the snobbiest way we can come up with. We'll have me and Ryan. I don't know if you want to be in on that, but we'll have Ben so you guys can hash it out. Yeah, the engineer. Oh yeah, I'm oh, excited yes. to discuss that one with a with yeah. an engineer. It, but yeah, I'll have to I'll have to come up. Do do we want to stay classic or can we can we get foreign? Can we get? Oh yeah, Nicole. No, I think free reign, free reign. Nicole has since picked the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Viewer discretion is advised. Free reign. Okay, let me think about this one. Yeah, I've been thinking about doing the Exterminating Angel, which is a 1960s Spanish film. So that's the next one I was uh, looking. I'd really to. like to do Solaris or Todo Bien. Ooh, fun, fun stuff. Not really, but I love both of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, we'll let you know as soon as convenient. Um, Ryan, Nicole, thanks for being on the podcast once again. Pleasure as always. Pleasure. Um. All right, I'm going to stop talking. See you guys later. Signing off.